Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm Mark Honigsbaum. And I'm Hannah Maudsley. We're the Disease Detectives, and in this series of Going Viral, we're investigating the devastating 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic, which swept the world 100 years ago. We've been talking a lot in our podcasts about the Western experience of the Spanish flu, but the flu is actually a worldwide phenomenon, and today we're going to look at that global picture. The carvings capture a particular moment when Australia was absolutely swamped with returning soldiers, but also with the problem of an invasion of a deadly disease that we'd seen you know, having ravaged the rest of the world as well. Episode 5, Global Impacts, Local Traces. So it's gone down in history as the Spanish flu, but nobody seriously believes it did actually come from Spain. It got that label, as we've said before, because Spain was neutral during the war and foreign correspondents based in Madrid didn't have to contend with press censorship, unlike in Britain and other countries fighting in the First World War. So that meant that they were free to report the depredations of flu in the Iberian Peninsula. The Spaniards, understandably, didn't like this label and thought it was part of anti-Catholic propaganda against them. Away from the war, people blamed the flu on somebody else. In Senegal, it was Brazilian flu. In Brazil, German flu. Poles called it the Bolshevik disease and so on. But as time went on, the Spanish flu stuck as a historical mistake set in stone. The first historians of the Spanish flu focused on the pandemic's impact in the United States and also in Europe. And as many of these countries were engaged in the fighting, it's been argued the pandemic was overshadowed by the First World War. But now there's this new wave of flu scholarship where writers like Laura Spinney are exploring the pandemic from the perspective of countries far removed from the European theatre of war. My goal was to shift the emphasis, but there's no criticism of those previous accounts. I think it's very logical that previous accounts were focused on the US or North America and Europe because that's where the best data was. And that's still the case, but more and more data is coming out about other places. And so I felt that it was reasonable to try to at least sketch the story in other places with what we know at this point in history. And also the it was necessary because it's very clear now that the vast burden of the death occurred elsewhere. This new perspective is also being explored in this anniversary year by artists. The choreographer Shobhana Jaya Singh is making a dance piece called Contagion based around the Spanish flu. We do need to remember these traumatic periods in our history Her perspective is really refreshing. Being a person who's a migrant in Britain, I'm always very aware when history is remembered, they're very partial, they're very subjective. You know, the history of India is told by an English civil servant of of the Raj, of the British Empire, would be very, very different to a history told by someone who lived in India. But actually with the flu, I think what is really interesting is that in some ways... It kind of escapes that partial history-making, history-telling, because it is a truly global event. At the same time, empire-making and empire-ending played a huge role in how the flu was played out in places like India and Indonesia and Alaska. So it's also very much part of the colonial history, and I think that that really needs to be unpacked. So in most places, an average of between 2 and 5% of the population perished. But in some isolated islands, the death toll was actually far higher. In Western Samoa, for example, a quarter of the population was wiped out. 
But in terms of absolute numbers, we think that India suffered the worst, with between 18 and 20 million deaths from the flu. Shobhana has unearthed a really powerful account from the first modern Hindi poet of India, who was known as Nirala. He witnessed the flu firsthand and he wrote about it in his autobiography. One of the few eyewitnesses of the Spanish flu was this Indian writer who wrote about what it was like to go back to his village and just lose almost everyone in his family. I received a telegram. Your wife is gravely ill. Come immediately. I was 22. I became aware of the intensity of our love just as she was ready to take leave of life. The newspapers had informed us about the ravages of the epidemic. I traveled to the riverbank in Dalmau and waited. The Ganga was swollen with dead bodies. Constant cremations. You know, his wife, his child, and he just saw a whole series of people being carried to the cremation ground. I sat down on the ground to take a hold of myself. Sister-in-law passed away on the third day after my cousin's death. Then uncle died. Constant cremations. One more corpse to cart to the Ganga. He just talks in a very calm way. This was the strangest time in my life. My family disappeared in the blink of an eye. I would go and sit on a mound by the Ganga and watch the file of corpses brought to the river. It reminds me of Yeats's epitaph for himself. Cast a cold eye on life on death. Horsemen pass by. You know, somewhere in Contagion, I'm hoping that this man's voice will be there. It is impossible to describe my feelings. God brings us to our senses by depriving us of what we desire. At the Imperial War Museum in London, I've been researching a collection of letters. They were gathered in the 1970s by British historian and journalist Richard Collier. And he placed adverts in newspapers all over the world, basically seeking memories of the Spanish flu. And the detail in these letters is utterly incredible. It gives a real flavour of what it was like to live through this event. One of the letters that really stands out for me is one by a chap called Philip Leroyd, and he was a schoolboy in Lancashire, England, at the time of the pandemic. Out of several hundred flu victims, only one died. Whether this was due to Blackpool's famous invigorating air or the Spartan regime we lived under, it would have daunted a legionnaire. I do not know. But in the circumstances, it was remarkable. Unhappily, they marked the passing of this boy by tolling the chapel bell. Even today, some 55 years later, the sound of a church bell recalls for me the Dickensian scene of a drab and dreary dormitory with greyish-yellow November gloom feebly countered by low-voltage lamps and the soft swish of the tide on the shingle outside. Something I really love about this letter in particular is it not only describes the sights but also the sounds of the pandemic. And it puts me in mind of something I asked Shobana about the score that she's going to use for her dance piece, Contagion. There are lots of sounds from the Spanish flu that have stayed in my head when I've read books. You know, the constant noise of people making coffins and funerals. And uh, I remember somewhere in Spain, the bishop, even though he was told that probably not a good idea to 
you get lots of people coming into cathedrals and you know and being in confined spaces. You know, he set up this the reciting of novenas. So I think people took strength from their belief system because finally, I guess that's all people had left. You know, it's that faith. Schopenhauer's thoughts on the sounds of the Spanish flu reminded me of something Professor John Oxford said. Viruses are known to have sounds, or put it another way, the virus infection makes the sound. And it was put to me by Jonas Salt, the American virologist who made the first polio vaccine. He said that polio had a sound when he went into the polio wards in the United States in the 50s, and they were full of children in these iron lungs. The sound was a hissing noise as the pumps in the iron lung pumped air in to keep the children alive, to help them breathe. So that was one sound of polio. And the other sound was of crying, and it was the children crying. Either they were hurt, or they were concerned or worried that they were going to die, and they did die. So a third of the children who died, died in the iron lung, and the other ones in the lungs realised it. So it was making a sound, polio. It was the hush and the crying of children. The flu, the wards were quiet. The soldiers' wards you, you hear about, they were pretty quiet. That's what a pneumonia ward is like. It's just difficulty in breathing. There's lots of descriptions of a euphoria of the soldiers, for example, not realising they were so close to death and slightly euphoric. So you'd have that sort of thing and you'd have people finding it difficulty in breathing and gasping for air. There'd be no shouting or running around. They'd be flat on their back in the bed or propped up, gasping for breath. So that would be the sound of the pneumonia ward in 1918. That would be the sound in this hospital. So I'm reminded what a strange and terrifying time the pandemic must have been for people. And no wonder people turned to rituals and ceremonies to try and ward off the deadly flu. A good example of this, I think, is the Jewish phenomenon of black weddings, which Laura Spinney uncovered in her research. There I was in a library in Odessa and I came across a newspaper report of one of these. At the time, Odessa was a very Jewish city. Odessa is a port city in the Ukraine. And there is an archaic Jewish tradition that when plague strikes a community, the community finds two unfortunate characters, so often homeless people or beggars or people who are marginalised in some way, and marries them to each other in the graveyard. Hence, it's called a black wedding. And the idea is that this ceremony will ward off the infection. Gifts are lavished on them, there's a feast. So there were several of these in Odessa and across Russia and in Jewish communities actually across the world. I found a report of one in New York. There are others in Winnipeg in Canada. So quite often where there was a Jewish community, they put on one of these ceremonies. It was a very much a resurrecting of a ritual that had not been performed for a long time. And I think it's an indication of the fear that they felt. The fact that people could look at their doctors, their conventional doctors, and see how completely at sea they were, just added to their terror. As Laura says, doctors were powerless to treat the flu. There was no antibiotics or antivirals, remember. So patients and their families had to improvise their own remedies. 
I understand that in countries like New Zealand and Australia, authorities recommended sprays as well as inhalation chambers as a cure. Inhalatoria, they were called. This is Dr Anthea Hislop, an Australian historian. Inhalarium or an inhalatorium was a place where people would go to breathe in a spray of very weak solution of zinc sulfate. Sometimes it was formalin, but that was not really recommended. People would inhale this and to get a kind of internal antiseptic treatment, internal cleansing. That was a popular public preventive. In private life, people gargled various throat cleansers and so forth and took patent medicines. They also resorted to alcoholic cures of various sorts, whiskey and lots of it. Sliced raw onion hung above your bed. A little bag slung around a child's neck with a lump of camphor in it as a sort of nose clearer, I suppose. During my research into Collier's letters, I realised that there were some missing. There were some accounts that he had explored in his book that he used the letters for that weren't in the archive at the Imperial War Museum. So through museum channels, I sent a letter to the address where Collier had lived 20 years previously. He died in 1996. Amazingly, got an email back saying that the house was being cleared for sale, but I was welcome to go and have a look. So obviously I hot-footed it down there And after three hours or so of searching in this sort of forgotten corner of the house and this dusty attic archive, I finally spotted the Australian accounts in the the last corner I looked in, obviously. That's always the way it works. And it was in this box file labelled Australian eyewitness accounts. I was so thrilled to find these letters, as you might imagine, and to think that the house was being cleared, they might have been lost forever. These memories might have been discarded along with the trash. And one of these letters is from a Mr Arch Ede, and he'd served in the Australian Army and was made to use one of these inoculation chambers that Dr Anthea Hislop is talking about on his return back home after the war. We were returning home in early 1919, leaving Liverpool, England on 9th of January. We sailed via Suez Canal, Colombo, etc. To our great disappointment, we were disbarred from leave at any port because, as we were informed... Flu was raging. On arrival at Fremantle, we found that those due for disembarkation in Western Australia were taken off at Albany to undergo a period of quarantine. This was the pattern at Adelaide, Hobart and Melbourne. On our arrival at Sydney, we were boarded by several doctors in flowing masks who gave us a cursory examination before we were taken to Northhead Quarantine Station for a week. During this time, daily visits to an inoculation chamber were the rule. Reading this letter got me wondering about the North Head Quarantine Station. I had known that Australia had been relatively lucky with the pandemic. It hit Australian shores on a later wave of the pandemic and those infected seemed to get a milder version of the flu. So the death rate there was lower than in many other countries. So for comparison, the Australian death rate was about 0.3% compared to a global 2 to 5%. And this was largely due to the strict process of quarantine at the North Head Quarantine Station. And I actually got to visit this site for my research. I'm here at North Head Quarantine Station near Sydney with Dr Peter Hobbins, who's an historian of science, technology and medicine at the University of Sydney. Peter, thank you for joining me. Pleasure, Hannah. What first interested you about the 1918 influenza? How did you first come across it? So many Australians, over 160,000, came home from Europe and the Middle East between the end of 1918 
and the end of 1919. So it was the biggest movement of people into Australia since the gold rushes of the 1850s. We had a very efficient and aggressive quarantine system here administered on a national level that actually kept out infected ships for nearly three months. Three months waiting in a quarantine station. Can you imagine how frustrating that must have been for soldiers who'd been away fighting for years in Europe and then had endured this long sea voyage back to Australia? Absolutely. I'm not sure we could achieve it today. It would be hard to emulate the success of the 1918 Australian maritime quarantine because of modern air travel. But Australia didn't completely escape the horror of the Spanish flu. And particularly people in remote areas in the bush really suffered. I heard one story about one family living in the Australian outback who couldn't go for help and the whole family were found dead a few days later. Anyway, back to North Head. So we're here on this outcrop, basically in the Sydney Harbour. You've got the waves lapping at the beach. It looks very idyllic. Can you tell me a little bit about this site? It's right at the very entrance to Sydney Harbour, so ships sailing into Sydney would immediately turn to the right and come into quarantine if they had an infectious disease aboard. But it was a very isolated site. It was a long way from the city, so it was perfect in many ways for protecting the rest of the city from those who had a highly infectious disease. What happens when people are confined in one area for days and weeks? They start writing on the walls. And that's exactly what happened here at the quarantine station. Passengers detained during outbreaks of disease had been inscribing marks on the sandstone walls there since the 1830s. These days we might call it graffiti, but of course because it's carved into rock and it was done 150 years ago, we think it's historic and charming instead of being a nuisance or you know, a, a urban decay. And many of them record names, dates and key members of the ship's crew. And so many of them are really ornate, really detailed, and they'd have taken days to complete. We tend to think these days of graffiti as something that you do in the dead of night behind a building where no one will catch you and where the the closed-circuit TV won't won't see you. But almost all the carvings are done out in very public areas and they would have been hammered into rock. You couldn't avoid people hearing you scraping and chiselling away. So they were very much a public performance, possibly to say, I was here, possibly to say, yay, we made it to Australia without dying. A lot of them have quite a communal feel, commemorating a voyage, a group of people on board a ship and often the name of the ship, where it came from, and some of the officers on board. So there's a real community on these voyages that in the sailing era could take four, five, even six months to get from the UK to Australia. One right in front of us, it's an outline of a flag and it says RMS Niagara Influenza. October 1918. It's a fantastic inscription. It's a beautiful yellow flag flapping in the wind. And the ship itself was also really important. It was the very first ship that ever came into Australian waters with the pneumonic influenza on board in October 1918. So in Australia at this point, we knew there was a major epidemic in other parts of the world, but it hadn't come into Australia yet. So the ship was quarantined and uh, very carefully monitored as well. Luckily, nobody on board that ship died, and I think that's one of the reasons why we had this beautiful flag commemorating the vessel. It was only after the Niagara came out of quarantine and other ships came into harbour that we started having people actually dying of flu at the quarantine station in late 1918. Fascinatingly, one of Collier's letters mentions this specific carving. William Ferguson was a steward on the Niagara ship and remembered the flag being carved by one of the passengers. He couldn't recall his name, but he did remember that it was an older chap. So where did the idea for these carvings come from? In Australia, we do have a tradition of convict graffiti, 
and also a tradition of carved trees. But I think probably the most appropriate Australian connection is Aboriginal rock art. So the Indigenous people in Australia made an extraordinary number of carvings of hand paintings and also spray painting, in other words, having pigment in their mouth and blowing it out over shapes like their hands, a tradition that dates back tens of thousands of years. So, in fact, the inscriptions at North Head Quarantine Station may even have been inspired by seeing local Aboriginal rock art when the first colonial people were quarantined here in the 1830s. The carvings capture a particular moment when Australia was absolutely swamped with returning soldiers, but also with the problem of an invasion of a deadly disease that we'd seen having ravaged the rest of the world as well. So it marks a really important turning point in Australian history, and from that point of view, keeping these inscriptions preserved and unravelling some of their stories is a really critical ongoing need. There are very few places in the world where you can find material traces of this pandemic, which is why I wanted to visit North Head, particularly with an expert like Peter. The Spanish flu didn't inspire memorialisation on the same scale as the First World War. Unlike the war dead, the flu dead were not commemorated. But one exception to that is in New Zealand, where you do see the local, personal and emotional impact of the flu pandemic in memorial form. In particular, I found a monument to a beloved physician in Victoria Park in Waimate on the South Island. This is the main street in Waimate and as you go along you suddenly see on the left this statue visible from the road of a woman and it says on the inscription Margaret B. Cruikshank MD died 28th of November 1918 the beloved physician faithful unto death. The figure itself is very authoritative looking. She's got a stern expression underneath her well-dressed hair. She's holding a book and she's wearing academic robes. It presents her as worthy of respect and there was clearly a lot of emotion and respect that went into erecting this statue after her death. Dr Margaret Cruikshank was the first female doctor in general practice in New Zealand and holds an important place in New Zealand medical history. And there's actually a letter in the Collier Collection written by a Alice M. Budd, which confirms Margaret Cruikshank as a local hero. Now I'm living in Waimate, where older residents look back with special sadness to the influenza epidemic. For their beloved Dr Margaret Cruikshank gave herself with unfailing energy to the care of the epidemic patients night and day, till she herself was smitten, because she had worked too long and too hard, she had no strength to fight, and she passed away. For me, the paradox of the Spanish flu is that it is now remembered as forgotten. But so many of Collier's letter writers emphasise how vivid their flu memories still were nearly 55 years after the event and how it was an experience the survivors would never forget. Contagion by the Shabana Jaya Singh Dance Company is touring later this year. And stay tuned to our feed because there'll be more episodes of Going Viral coming later in 2018. Going Viral is presented by me, Mark Honigsbaum. And me, Hannah Maudsley. Please do subscribe to our series so you don't miss an episode. And we'd love you to rate us too. Get in touch with us on Twitter at goingviral underscore pod. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. And the series is supported by the Wellcome Trust. <laughs>